This morning I wanted to continue the inquiry and the exploration that we began last week. Last week we looked generally at the core teaching called the teaching of the three characteristics of experience or the three characteristics of phenomena which point to three areas of focus in practice. And these are looking at impermanence, looking at the nature of dukkha, usually translated suffering, and looking at the nature of the self. And last time I gave a general sense of these three, but particularly focused on the second, on looking into dukkha or suffering, or as I preferred to uh, translate it, as reactivity. And we focused on that. And I was reflecting partly because of the day, this being uh, Veterans Day or Armistice Day, related to the ending of war, that I wanted to continue and give more depth to the understanding of dukkha, working with dukkha or reactivity. And so, in particular today, I want to uh, look into what I developed as eight ways of studying and transforming reactivity. More tools than you thought you needed, (laughs) perhaps. So, first, to do a brief review of the exploration of dukkha or reactivity that we uh, engaged in last time. And we can start really with the uh, statement by the Buddha at one point in his teachings where he said, I have taught dukkha and the end of dukkha. That is the nature of my teaching. And that's the focus. And again, uh, dukkha is a term which some people prefer to leave untranslated, uh, which is translated in different ways, sometimes as, uh, most typically as suffering, uh, sometimes as stress or unsatisfactoriness. I like to translate it as reactivity because I think it gets to the heart of the teaching. Because actually the the word dukkha is used in quite a variety of ways, but I think the essence, or the, the deeper, maybe I should say the deeper aspect of the, of the term dukkha, refers to the mind not being at peace, at being reactive, and being reactive typically in two ways, grabbing hold of things, as if that would bring happiness, and pushing away things. Bo- in both uh, senses, compulsively, semi-consciously or unconsciously, pushing things away as if that would bring happiness. Then there's this uh, deep tendency to grab at things as if that would bring happiness to me. And so we grab at all sorts of things in our lives, at this relationship, this experience, this meal, this job, as if that would bring a kind of deep happiness. The teaching is, that uh, no amount of grasping can bring the deepest happiness. No amount of pushing away can bring the deepest happiness. Of course, 
work, relationships, stability of home, of being connected with the land, etc., can be uh, quite important for happiness, but in themselves, none of those is lasting. It's partly related to the teaching of impermanence. And so this deeper teaching is that of really looking at reactivity in the mind. And I again, I like reactivity as a translation of dukkha because it points to this deeper teaching. And also, when we look at reactivity, we focus on both the pushing away and the grabbing hold as the two manifestations of reactivity. And again, the, uh, the teaching that uh, I find expresses this most concisely, which I'll come back to, is the teaching of the two arrows. You know, again, this, this very fundamental teaching where the Buddha says, we're all, as it were, shot by the arrow at times of the unpleasant. We have unpleasant physical experiences, emotional experiences, interpersonal experiences, social experience, un un injustice, unfairness. That happens to all of us at times, some more than others. And he said, that's like being shot by the first arrow. And that is, a, as it were, a given of experience. We are all sometimes shot by the first arrow. In itself, that's not the problem. And we could call that first arrow pain or the presence of the unpleasant. He said that what distinguishes people who are wise from those who are more ignorant is that the latter, when there's the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow as if that would help. The unpleasant is present in my body. I may tense around it. I may blame myself. I may blame others. I may engage in negative thinking. All sorts of things are possible. Difficult emotions, difficult interpersonal interactions. I, will be, I may be reactive. I can judge myself, blame others, um, become depressed, tell myself scary stories. We know all of that, right? That, uh, the Buddha said, is shooting the second arrow. And uh, this is particularly helpful because we can say that uh, the first arrow we could call pain, the second arrow we could call suffering, the second arrow is dukkha. In the sense, the first arrow is a given at times. The second arrow, the shooting of the second arrow, can be ended. The second arrow, we might say, is unnecessary, contributes to unnecessary pain. And this is the focus of practice. This is the focus, and it's right at the center of our practice. And again, I sometimes like to summarize our practice and say that the center of our practice is becoming responsive rather than reactive. And that responsiveness has to do with being present, being mindful, having love and compassion, and being wise. Responsiveness has all of those qualities. Reactivity has none. And so this, this is a way to point to the center of our practice. Last time we offered um, really a few ways of practicing. One of them was to particularly look out, as we did in our guided practice this morning, to look out for any moments of reactivity. We can set an intention in the morning or maybe before a difficult interaction. 
let me track for reactivity. Let me set my radar so I notice those moments of reactivity, so I can tune into them and can work with them. Because the, one of the characteristics of reactivity is that it takes us away and we're lost and we're just caught up in reacting you know, uh, for a considerable amount of time. And so this first uh, practice is to look out for uh, the reactivity. Set your radar, set your intentions to look for it. And then when you find it, to work with uh, what I also gave in the guided practice as three core practices, which are really versions of the first three of the Four Noble Truths. The first is when you notice reactivity, again in the t one of the two forms of pushing away or grabbing hold, grasping after something. When you notice that, tune into it. What's it like? What's that experience like? What's it feel like in the body? What's the mind doing? And we have to study our reactivity over and over again. Last time I was joking that this is actually right at the center of our practice, but we don't make it quite so central in our promotional materials. Here, learn how to meditate. You will learn how to be very often with unpleasant experiences. <laughs> our promotional material seems to suggest that we are moving towards understanding, wisdom, compassion, but we don't always tell you the journey that it may take to have those qualities be mature, which is a lot of hanging out with reactivity. So we hang out with it, we learn about it. The purpose of going more deeply into it and learning about it is especially to um, inform us so that we can increasingly notice the reactivity as soon as possible after it occurs so that we can respond to it. One of the hallmarks of reactivity is that it's not that we don't notice that we're being reactive. We're just lost in it. And so the, the training is to help us notice it as soon as possible so we're lost in it a minimum of the time. The second practice was to then look when we're in touch with the reactivity, can, can we have a sense of I'm grasping after something or I'm pushing away something? You know, if I'm sitting here and I have some shoulder unpleasantness and I can, and I notice, oh, I'm grasping, oh, I had the assumption, that would not occur. My plan for my meditation was pleasant, calm, no shoulder pain. And look what happened. And, and I can notice, oh, I'm grasping after this way that it should be. That's the second. Can I tune into that and feel that? And thirdly, can I in some way let go of that grasping or pushing away? And just be with it. Again, with the shoulder pain, if it's not exacerbating an injury. If it's actually something I can be with. Can I be with the unpleasant? And so forth. And so we can uh, learn how to let go of that grasping or pushing away, or as I mentioned in the guided meditation, if I can't let go, can I let be? I may sit there and I may notice my mind continually being reactive, but can I just be with the reactivity 
without being reactive about the reactivity, which in another metaphor would be not just shooting the second arrow, but the third, fourth, fifth, twelfth, twenty-fourth, and eighty-ninth arrow. Um, so we learn how to do that. And I was, um, I was interested, and in, in, I got excited yesterday. I just thought, oh, are there these many ways? And I came up with eight ways of studying and transforming reactivity, even somewhat beyond what I just mentioned. And I wanted to present those. And I was, I was partly um, inspired to explore this, partly because of today being the anniversary of the ending of the First World War, which we've, again, sometimes it's called Armistice Day, sometimes uh, Veterans Day. But I, w- I was thinking about the, the ending of war, because we could really interpret transforming reactivity and ending reactivity as, in a way, the ending of war, whether it's inner war or interpersonal war or war between groups or nations. And I, as those of you who've heard me often know, I'm very interested in the connections in terms of our practice and in terms of looking at reactivity between how reactivity is there at the inner level, at the level of our own being, our own inner experience, how it's there interpersonally, and how it's there in terms of uh, social occurrences. And we can really see in many ways uh, a lot of our difficulties in interactions as well as social issues as at their core related to this theme of reactivity. And it actually gives a handle for understanding much of what's happening in the world. Again, many of the conflicts in the world are the 89th or the 3,000th arrow. That's been shot. But they're essentially uh, because people react when there's the unpleasant or they grasp after what they want. And I, th- I think the underlying dynamic, in that sense, is simple. So I want to bring that out. And I was thinking about that. You know, I was, and I was reflecting uh, the Catholic contemplative Thomas Merton, who, I, who has influenced me a lot. And a few weeks ago, I, I was in Kentucky. And as I do almost every year, I go out to his monastery and uh, spend time there. And he said this. He said, he, I think he was also very interested in the connection between conflict and war and reactivity. He said, at the root of war is fear. Not so much the fear that humans have of one another, but the fear that they have of everything. It is not merely that they do not trust one another, they do not even trust themselves. They're basically lost. And he talked about how, you know, in conflicts there is projection. We project onto each other. We create scapegoats. We're, we create enemies. You know, again, through an action of reactivity. When we have created for ourselves a suitable enemy, a scapegoat, we invest in that scapegoat all the evil in the world. The enemy is the cause of every wrong, the fomenter of all conflict. If he only can be destroyed, all conflict will cease. Evil be, will be done with. There will be no more, no more war. So we externalize in those kind of conflicts. We see the problem as outside. You know, we talk about an axis of evil. 
or we locate problems elsewhere. You know, and we, we can see this again, we can see this in an inner way, interpersonally and in, 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 the, in the world. The, um, the uh, foreign journalist Robert Fisk, who, who writes for the London Independent, says that war is the total failure of the human spirit. And there's a story that also makes this connection, which I love, which I'm, again, I'm offering partly because of the day. This is a story about the American uh, poet and artist named Paul Reps. Some of you may know him. He, he uh, wrote one of the early books on Zen, or brought it together, called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Anyone read that? Quite, that had a lot of the early Zen koans, haikus. And was a, I know it was one of the first books I ever read about Zen. And he um, uh, made a, a trip to, uh, uh, he was in Japan, and he had plans to visit a uh, Zen master in Korea. And he went to the uh, passport office in Japan to apply for his visa, but was informed that the request was denied due to the war that had just broken out in Korea. This was in the 19th, early 1950s. Uh, Rep sat down in the waiting area. He had come thousands of miles with the plans to study with this Korean teacher. He was frustrated and disappointed. What did he do? He practiced what he practiced. He uh, went into his bag and brought out a thermos and poured himself a cup of tea. With a calm and focused mind, he watched the tea rising and dissolving into the air. He smelled the fragrance. In other words, he came back to the present moment and let go of his reactivity. He tasted the tea and enjoyed its warmth and wetness. Finishing his tea, he put his cup back in, on his thermos, put his thermos in his bag, and pulled out a pen and paper upon which he wrote a haiku poem. Mindfully, he walked back to the clerk behind the counter, bowed and presented him with his poem and his passport. The clerk read it and looked deeply into Paul Rep's eyes. <laughs> Smiling, he bowed with respect, picked up his visa, and stamped him with a passport to Korea. Here was the poem. Drinking a cup of tea, I stopped the war. So this is a, a Zen haiku poem, and so it requires sitting with it some. It's not, I'm not going to try to explain it. <laughs> but it's related to this theme of, uh, we, we could say, um, transforming reactivity is the ending of war. So I have explained it, actually. It's transforming reactivity is the ending of war, and we do that in every non-reactive moment. And so, I was thinking of this, and I thought of eight ways of, of studying and transforming reactivity. And I want to offer those, uh, and I'll see if I have time to get through the, the eight. But this is, uh, this is really, uh, really support for bringing the um, practice with reactivity into our daily lives. Because I think all of these are quite practical. Okay, so here, here they are, um, and they're, 
they will be familiar. They're pretty, pretty simple in certain ways. So the first, here's the first way we study and transform reactivity. We cultivate non-reactivity. <laughs> okay, number one, we cultivate non-reactivity in order to study and transform reactivity. So we need some tools to study and transform reactivity. So we have to cultivate non-reactivity. So we cultivate that in ways that are familiar to all of us. We cultivate mindfulness, which is, in its essence, non-reactive. Mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive, right? Mindfulness of anger is not angry. Mindfulness of grasping is not grasping. So we cultivate that quality of mindfulness. We cultivate uh, uh, qualities of the heart. We cultivate heart practices which help us to be non-reactive. And I'll come back to that. We cultivate metta, or loving kindness, or compassion, ways that the heart can be at rest. We practice with those. We keep on developing those. We develop ways that we can ground and center in the body so that the body can be uh, increasingly non-reactive itself. We develop in speech practice. We develop in ethics. You know, I'm not going to go so much into it, but a lot of the skill in being non-reactivity has to be translated into how we talk. How do you talk to someone when you get reactivity coming at you? How do you work in an inner way? How do you speak? There's a lot there. You know, we sometimes have looked into that over, over weeks. And again, I, I, I often teach retreats on that theme. It's a big theme. You know, we learn how to be skillful with conflict. We may, if we're interested in bringing this into the social realm, we may develop skill in nonviolence, which is a form of bringing non-reactivity into action, you know, as in the teachings of Gandhi and King. So that's number one. Cultivate non-reactivity. Number two, we study and learn about our main forms of reactivity. So we, we actually, again, if we, when we practice and we set our radar to look at reactivity, what we're essentially doing is we're, we're saying, I want to really study and learn about my own forms of reactivity. And so we get very familiar with the top five or the top ten. It can, be, it can be helpful to actually drop a list. Here are my five main forms of reactivity. Get really familiar with them. We become experts in our own reactivity. Again, not in the promotional literature, <laughs> necessarily. But this so crucial. We get to be really experts. My five main ways that I lose it. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful, because when we're familiar with that, again, all this is in the service of not getting caught and lost in the reactivity. You become an expert on your own reactivity, and then in the next time it comes, oh, there it is, there's number three. <laughs> and you don't get caught in it, and you have, um, you have further tools to help you respond, you know, which are some of what I'm going to talk about as numbers three through eight in my list of ways of studying and transforming reactivity. So we have to really know our forms of reactivity in detail. What's my typical negative storyline? What's my reactive storyline with pattern, you know, reactive pattern number one? You know, we, it might be to 
no, here, oh, I, I have very strong tendencies to go to self-judgment or to go to blaming of other or, you know, blaming of partner for not keeping agreement may be significant reactive pattern number three. I, I was, I was, inter I, I've been, I'm interested. I think every uh, relationship has its dysfunctional reactive syndrome. You know, it's it's central form of reactivity uh, that if uh, if uh, people in a relationship can actually work with it, it's actually the key to transformation. But we have to know that that's the pattern. And again, the more typical tendency is that we get lost in it. We don't we don't know it. So we have to know what it's like in the body, know what the storyline is, know what the emotions are. When I get reactive, what's a typical emotion? Again, we study it over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. This is, this is central to our practice. Number three, we learn how we shoot the second arrow, and especially we become able not to shoot the second arrow. So I've talked about the second arrow, a key training is, as we get to know our reactivity better, we may see that I'm starting to be reactive, I'm starting to shoot the second arrow, and with my mindfulness, I learn how not to do that. Something difficult has happened to me, I had a difficult interaction yesterday, it's painful, and I notice myself starting to blame, but I've studied it enough, so I said, here it is, I'm again shooting the second arrow, or something you know, I have had a, a difficult, you know, um, few days, let's say, a difficult few days, and I notice myself getting down on myself, like, I'm never going to learn. You know, I'm just hopeless, right? That's shooting the second arrow. When we're familiar with it, we notice that tendency to shoot the arrow, second arrow, and we can take it as a core part of practice. I will, I will as much as I can, try to notice the second arrow and not shoot it. Huge, right? You know, again, as I've mentioned from time to time, probably the single most common guidance that I give to people when I work with them. Watch out for the second arrow. Watch out for that negative narrative that you have a tendency to go to when this happens or that happens. You know? I like the uh, New Yorker cartoon, which I, which I uh, use when I teach on speech as one of the way this manifests, the shooting of the second arrow manifests in context of speech shows this, again, the woman, you may remember this, the woman uh, sitting on a couch, a uh, detective in front of her with a notepad behind the couch, uh, a, a police officer also behind the couch, a set of legs on the ground, feet sticking up, and the woman says to the police officer, he misspoke. I misheard. Shots rang out. <laughs> so, you know, so second arrow, second arrow, bang. <laughs> right? So we want to study those. We want to study those. And if either, if either of those people would have had the practice, honey, um, I'm feeling a tendency to shoot the second arrow and I'm not going to do it. Oh, thank you for intervening. This prevents, the, this prevents the detective and the police officer from coming to our house and us ending up in a New Yorker cartoon. <laughs> so, so we can do that, you know. And it's also, um, 
I think we can see how, you know, just again looking at the world, so much of the nature of conflicts has to do with shooting the second arrow. And again, continuing and continuing and continuing. And it's not easy, right? Because think, uh, you know, think of one of the most intense conflicts, which is the Middle East, you know, happening Israel and Palestine. And essentially you have deep, deep pain that is unable to be cared for. I often think of the core dynamic in the Middle East, you have two traumatized people who are caught in their trauma. Right? At least, you know, a lot of the leaders, a lot of the population. How do you get out of that? You know, because when you're one's caught in trauma, one's caught in one's reactivity. You get triggered over and over again very easily. And the triggering, I mean, it's interesting we use the word trigger in psychological terms, but it's also points to the military aspect, the, the aspect of violence. And so a lot of, a lot of the uh, shooting the second arrow is difficult to get at because the pain is deep. Right? And so we have to find ways also to deal with the pain. But it's helpful to know that the reactions are coming out of pain. And they're coming out of unresolved trauma. You know, and how to work. We do have tools to work with all this. But it's, of course, again, it's very hard to apply them. There is the wisdom in the world to resolve these conflicts. You know. The Buddha from the Dhammapada, violence never ceases through hatred. It is only through love that it ceases. This is an ancient law. Again, it's really saying reactivity never ends with reactivity. You know, even though in certain situations where one side has more strength, it can look like it ends. But wherever there's injustice, things never really end. Right? You can have temporary peace because of one side is stronger, but it's not a true solution. You know, the reactivity is still there, and it will keep on going until something is really resolved. And so we can see that sort of unresolved trauma in a lot of the conflicts in our society. You can see, think of something like racism. You know, it's, you know, centuries of trauma that were not fully treated. Think of slavery, Jim Crow, not really dealt with in a full way, dealt with partially, right? And so the reactivity, the fear, and all of that is still there. You know, and, it's, and again, we know how to work with this, but we don't always have the will or the, the skill to work with this. So that's a third, that's a big area. You know, and, you know, and I, I think of, um, uh, I'll, come back, I'll come back to this other point. A fourth, a fourth way that we work with um, transforming or studying and transforming reactivity is connected with this model, which I like a lot, which I've used quite often in this class, which is the model of the ladder of inference. Do you remember? Some of you remember that. I brought in a little uh, model of it here because I didn't ask for PowerPoints this morning. <laughs> so this is the old-fashioned way of doing <laughs> graphics. <laughs> you know? And so uh, I'll be very brief with this. But the ladder of inference is a very nice model which comes from the field of organizational development. And uh, it shows this ladder. And at the bottom of the ladder, you have more direct experience and data. So this was, um, uh, this was a model that says, 
we, we have, this is really a model of how we move from experience and what we might call raw data to um, more levels of generalization and abstraction, you know, and views. And so at the bottom, we have like an infinite amount of possible data. At this given moment, there's an infinite amount of data that's available to you. All of you are devotedly listening with bated breath to my every word, but you could be thinking about the past, you could be thinking about lunch, you could be staring at your neighbor's socks and seeing if you want to ask the person where the socks were bought, you know, and then thinking instead of listening to me about the ladder of inference, you're, you know, you're thinking about, uh, you know, maybe you should go shopping right after the class and, and maybe this is the right time to get socks and um, but no, maybe they're, maybe that person's socks actually look nicer, you know. So we could go an infinite, you know, infinite number of directions. And in actuality, we choose out of the infinite pool of available data, we choose a small amount where we actually focus. You know, here again, you have infinite amount of data, you choose to focus on my words with, you know, complete concentration and focus, surely. You know, and, um, and then out of that, as we go up the ladder, then you fo we focus on certain things and then we give meaning to some of them. You might listen to this and say, oh, yeah, I should really put that into practice. Or you say, that's not right. You know? you, we give meaning to it. We, we, uh, and then we might, uh, again, we might give meaning to something and, and decide on some, make some assumption or come with some action plan. I might say that's, you know, I really want to practice with reactivity next week and maybe for the rest of my life. Yes. Okay, I'm on. I'm on. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you might find meaning in that way. And so this is, this is a very simple model of how, you know, it, and it's really pointing to a basic way that our minds work. We have an infinite pool of data. Out of that, we select certain out. We find meaning in a certain way. We draw, make assumptions, draw conclusions, make plans for action, and so forth. This is quite normal. Now, one of the interesting things is that when we're reactive, we go up the ladder. And this is, this is a description of both skillful use of abstraction and generalization. You know, I might say, oh yeah, I really want to practice with reactivity, and I, especially those two first ways to practice. You know, you might make a conclusion there. That would be skillful. Unskillful uh, actions also happen often, and I, I like, uh, uh, you know, I like the example that, that uh, Sylvia once gave, remember, where she was wanting to do a retreat at the uh, Zen Center. She calls up and asks for the appointment. Uh, person says the uh, person in charge of reservations to do a retreat isn't here. Um, can you call back later? Calls back later. Oh, that person's out. Uh, call back tomorrow. Calls, she calls back the next day. And uh, oh, yeah, um, the person in charge of reservations is caught in traffic. Uh, oh, you have to call back again. And, and Sylvia says, well, I guess I'm not supposed to do the uh, retreat then. She's gone up the ladder, right? And, and the, the, Zen the Zen person at the switchboard says, no, I think it simply means that this person is not here. <laughs> right, right. So uh, she stayed down at the lower parts of the ladder, and uh, she went up the ladder. And we go up the ladder often. We go up the ladder often when there's pain, when there's difficulty. We start generalizing. Something difficult happens. 
we go up to conclusion, oh, this is what this means about me, right? You know, I'm not okay, right? You know, this thing happened, I got a negative job, uh, what, job evaluation, and I start going into my own negative stories about myself. That's going up the ladder. Pain can, and reactivity drives us up the ladder. And so another way to work with um, studying and transforming reactivity is to use this tool and watch the tendency of the mind to go up the ladder when there's reactivity and see if you can come down the ladder. Often coming down the ladder means to just be with the reactivity, be with what's unpleasant and hang out there. And this is actually, you know, a large number of conflicts people are driven up the ladder by reactivity and get caught in high-level views, often negative views about the other side, and get caught there and cannot come down. So think of when you're in conflict with another person, we may be driven up the ladder to a view about the other person, right? This person is this way. The judgmental mind and blaming are all up the ladder. And so often what we need to do to work with conflicts is to come down the ladder. Peacemakers typically take people, take people involved in the conflict down the ladder. What happened? What was your experience? Can you stay away from your negative views of the other and not state them and just go to what you actually experience? This is what peacemakers do. Thich Nhat Hanh says peacemakers bring the suffering of one side to the other side and vice versa. They bring the sides actually down the ladder. Yeah. Uh, there's a beautiful statement from uh, James Baldwin once said, I imagine that one of the reasons that people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. Right? So pain drives people up to hatred, to views, to all sorts of things. So again, a very beautiful area of our practice is to watch the tendency of the mind to go up the ladder when there's reactivity. is a good illustration of this process and the star guy kept it down and didn't let the process go up the ladder. Right, so uh, <laughs> a film Bridge of Spies referred to where, where there's uh, like a skillful intervener prevents that going up the ladder. Again, this is in itself neutral. We can go up the ladder skillfully, we can go up the ladder unskillfully, but reactivity will tend to draw us up the ladder, tend to bring us up the ladder unskillfully. And it really is related to the uh, fifth point, which is that with reactivity, we're typically lost and unautomatic. We are caught in our reactivity, and so we need ways to get unlost and come back to balance. We need to, with our mindfulness, know I'm lost. Because actually, uh, so a lot of the times when we're lost, we're not 100% lost. We're like 95% lost. And that 5% is saying, Donald, you're lost. <laughs> right? And so we can make use of that. So the, we need a certain amount of mindfulness to know when we're really stuck, lost, whatever metaphor we use, and have a bunch of ways to come back. This is like a fifth way of working with reactivity. Because... Uh, and so it might be simply to uh, know we're lost and do something, you know, we to have a repertoire of three or five or ten ways that we get unstuck. You know, it might be that you meditate. It might be that you do metta or loving kindness. 
It may be that you take a walk. It may be that you do something physical that sort of takes you out of that stuckness. We need to have ways to come out of our stuckness, being with beauty, talking with a friend, right? We need to have ways to get unlost. Meditation is like a lost and found department. We're lost and then we find ways to come back and find ourselves. So we have to have ways to do that. You should have, maybe, maybe we should have laminated cards that we each keep in our pockets. Five ways to get unstuck or unlost. Okay. I think I'm lost. Let me bring out the card. Oh, here's what it says. Oh, oh, talk with a friend. Oh, okay. Okay. Be with beauty. Take a walk. Do something uplifting, whatever, whatever it might be. There should be an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have an app where you have a, a network, you know, have a network of people, you know. It can work, you know, you have a network of people. You have a, an app, and any of you are free to design it. Okay. You have, have something which says, you know, you have your network of 10 friends who, who will agree to get um, what texts from you if you're lost or stuck, and then respond back, right? That'd actually be huge, wouldn't it? Something like that, or we can have the equivalent of that. So this is number five. What are you calling number four? Oh, number four was uh, uh, going up the ladder. Yeah, so the first one was cultivating non-reactivity. The second was, was studying your own patterns of reactivity. The third one was about not shooting the second arrow. The fourth was being careful about going up the ladder. Yes, thanks, thanks. And the fifth is finding ways to get unstuck or unlost. Okay, I'm going to go somewhat quickly through the last three so we can have time to talk together because I know a lot of you were, how many of you were practicing with reactivity in the last week? Yeah, yeah, so we want to hear some of these stories. Okay, so I'll be brief. Maybe I'll need to do a little bit more detail next, next time. So number six, when we're re- reactive, we're not in our hearts. We're kind of out of our hearts, out of our kind hearts. And so we can do what we need, can do to come back to our hearts. You can think of it with when we're judgmental in a relationship, when we're blaming, there's no empathy, we're not in our hearts, we're polarized with another person. Same thing when we're reactive. When we're reactive, we're just kind of on automatic and we're out of our awakened kind hearts. And so a way to respond to that is directly is to move towards that kind awakened heart by inner practices, by by cultivating empathy. Not easy, right? You just have reactions between two people. We can train to actually make the move towards empathy with that person. Can I move to say, this person is a human being, what's this person actually experiencing? What the, what's this person's pain? You know, and it can, there can be other practices. Each of us will have some uh, practices or ways of connecting with the heart which work better than others. For some it might be using forgiveness a lot. For others, compassion. For others, empathy and so forth. So these are, um, these are ways to, to work. Uh, number seven. Um, because we're in our reactivity so much on automatic, it can help to work a lot with intention, to work to uh, bring more and more intention to our lives. I will intend to track my reactivity. I will try, you know, I will keep setting up intentions and working with intentions. I'm going to a difficult meeting. I will try to really 
work with these tools during this meeting. Right? Intentions don't guarantee anything, but they help. Okay, and the last, and maybe the most important, but I'll still be brief. <laughs> Reactivity is ultimately driven by ignorance. As we practice, we want to keep inquiring more and more into the deeper roots of our reactivity. We can do that in a few different ways. Maybe, maybe I should reserve that for a whole talk. Uh, and and I'll, so I'll be brief here. So we can do that in a lot of different ways, but we, we can see that a lot of our reactivity is actually driven by old patterns of reactivity, of habits. We want to study those. We want to get to know those. We want to go deeper into seeing what the roots are. Uh, this is from Rilke, a poem. No one lives his life, disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures. We come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away, like suits of armor, her old carriages, her clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe all the paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. We all have habits, some of them more personal, some of them from the family, some of them from the culture, that are there that um, contribute to our reactivity. Some of them we can investigate psychologically, some of them by looking at social conditioning, some of them we look at by looking at the very nature of the self and how we, th and, and we can keep on going more deeply with this. Again, um, I'll, be, I'll be brief here and maybe reserve this for, for another time. But the, the idea is that we want to keep on, we want to keep on looking more and more deeply what are, the roots, what are the roots of this form of reactivity? So there's a certain amount of inquiry that can be really helpful to see the patterns, sometimes to work with others around common patterns you know, of reactivity, and take actually reactivity as a starting point for going more deeply. Maybe I'll, I'll stop there. That's a little bit enigmatic, but that's number eight. <laughs> So, okay, let me finish with a few, uh, what, two, two closing, maybe three clo closing comments. Um, this is from the poet Yeats. It takes more courage to examine the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on a battlefield. And second is from the Buddha. So it's actually repeating what I said earlier, the, really pointing to the center of our practice as working with reactivity, which again I'm giving as a translation of dukkha. The Buddha says, I have taught one thing and one thing only, dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. And then the last is from the uh, Persian poet Hafiz. This is called To Build a Swing. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. <laughs> you have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for God. 
Again, a little different language, but that sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with my divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a, sing a thousand words you can take into your hands, like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teak wood, strong silk rope, silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them. Mix them. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> And uh, maybe just to say what might be obvious, that studying and practicing non-reactivity in the ways we've looked at, in the eight ways and other ways, is a way to learn how not to mix the ingredients that turn one's life into a nightmare, and how to mix the ingredients that turn one's life and existence into joy. So thank you for your attention, and we can open things up to any uh, conversation or discussion, questions, and we'll use a mic, so, okay. First of all, thank you so much for what you came up with yeah that could be a book <laughs> there's a book there yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what was neat about the topic was it reminded me of a funny story somebody told me about these two police officers that had been called to a house where the wife had shot the husband with a shotgun mm. and so they arrived there and uh, the police officer called his sergeant and said I'm here at this home and this woman shot her husband with a shotgun because he walked on the wet kitchen floor. <laughs> and the sergeant said, well, did you arrest him yet? I mean, arrest her yet? And he said, no, uh, the floor is still wet. And I thought that was a great example of not reacting. <laughs> yeah, and to... And to show, uh, again, uh, reactivity takes us places that can be uh, very harmful. Right? Right. And of course, there's, there's surely a backstory there that you know, pro probably goes into a lot more depth. Probably isn't as, you know, probably the walking on the wet floor had all sorts of levels of meaning, right? Where I wasn't simply one <laughs> trivial incident, right? It's probably yeah, we don't know, but, but, but likely, yeah. Uh, please, there was, uh, yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I was thinking about uh, what really hit me was eight. And when you said ignorance, I was thinking, you know, um, I had done a lot of work on the old tapes I grew up with. Yeah. And then I packaged them away and put them away. And the reality is, it never has really been fully worked on. It still yeah. comes through the reactivity. Yeah. And uh, just like this morning, you know, I checked to see how the crew was doing up in New Jersey. And, and they said, oh, the guy came into work and he forgot his insulin, so they had to drive him home. And I was thinking, you know, well, why didn't they just drop him home and go back to work? You know, and I'm, and I'm 
reacting. Yeah. You know, you should have done better. Yeah. And um, and that's an old tape. Yeah. You know, and and you know, and those are my defects that still come up. And this is a great tool. Uh, you know, there's um, to know what my problem areas are. Yeah. Reactivity. Yeah. And that's what, because I wasn't ready for it when it came. I just went right to react. Right. You know, and just having the pause, just taking that time to pause. Right. Doesn't quite do it because I'm still not ready to comprehend some of those patterns. Um, but now I have some tools, which, some which tools. I've been using. Yeah, great. Yeah, and you know, one, one thing I didn't mention, this could be a, a ninth, would be um, actually pay a lot of attention to minor reactivity. I think that we actually can learn there because they're, they're actually not, it's not so intense. But the dynamics are exactly the same. Pay attention, you know, again, for some of us, uh, reactivity while driving may be not minor. <laughs> but for some of us it might be, or it might be moderate. And we can actually, uh, when we study reactivity a lot with where it's not quite so intense, it helps uh, train us for when it's more intense. That's so quite, quite important to, so sometimes we just in our practice want to, okay, things are really intense, now I should apply my practice. And that um, doesn't always work so well. It really helps to give attention to the lesser kinds of reactivity. Maybe just one other small point I wanted to bring out from your point. I, I didn't really clarify this earlier, but um, we can be reactive and we might actually be, uh, have kind of a certain wisdom mixed in with the reactivity. So there may be something that actually, if you were non-reactive, there might be something still important to say related to that work situation, right? But the problem is, is that our, you know, we may see a point, but it gets all mixed up with reactivity, and people pick up on the reactivity, right? So we may, in an interpersonal uh, issue, have quite valid points. When they get mixed up with reactivity, the person isn't going to hear the valid point, typically, unless the person's pretty skillful. The person will hear the blaming or the judging, right? And so, in the long run, we want to disentangle the reactivity from whatever intelligence is there, or moral point, or whatever, which can be quite important and significant, but when it gets mixed up with reactivity, it doesn't work so well. That's the same thing with all the world conflicts. There's typically are valid points on each side, right? But they get mixed up with reactivity, and they, you can't hear them. Yeah. So we had other hands up, please. And Thank you. The, um Discussion about an app made me remember um, a random gratitude app that I've been using that I just want to recommend. It's a free yeah. app, and you can use it to uh, document your, you know, what you're grateful for every day. The cool thing about this app is it pings you a couple of times during the day and asks you, in this moment, what are you grateful for? <laughs> so it's called Random Gratitude, and it just occurred to me when we were talking about there should be an app for that. Okay. <laughs> So the random gratitude <laughs> app, uh, again, it's a way of uh, uh, cultivating non-reactivity. Yeah. And cult yeah, please, uh, John. Thank you, Donald. You're welcome. I have a tenth item, maybe. A what? Or tenth item or eleventh item. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's related to um, intentions. And um, just lately I've been starting to work on the topic of 
developing affirmations. Yeah. It's a little different than intentions. Yeah. But, um, and I think there's a lot of potential there of, of um, trying to create maybe four or five affirmations that mm -hmm. I can repeat yeah. during the day to deal with difficult situations or reactive yeah. situations. And I think it's very much related to um, changing the, the, the wiring of the brain. It's by, by stating these intentions and affirmations, uh, you know, the power of positive thinking. Right. It does something to your brain and the, and the waves of the brain. And, and you tend to be less reactive. Yeah. So I just want to throw that one. Yeah, yeah. Too. So that that could uh, that might be its own point, or there are aspects of it which could be related to the first about cultivate non-reactivity. Also, the what I was giving as the eighth about going into the deep, uh, you know, the deep habits or whatever. Part of the transformation of the deep habits would be to develop other ways of doing things. You know, and it, they they could. They could appear as affirmations or just the kind of wisdom that you hold. It might be like with your situation, with a work situation, it might be, uh, you know, when a conflict arises at work, I will cultivate empathy. Could be something like that, right? Right, and it's really a wisdom expression that we, you know, and we could repeat it in a way that would actually tend to support our putting it into practice. So, I think it would be, you know, really could fit under a few of these or be its own, but it, it would be part, it's really part of how we transform deep, deep uh, patterns, deep, deep habitual patterns. Yeah. Uh, Marty, please. I uh, lost my wallet on my way to New York, uh, <laughs> and which meant I didn't have my ID. <laughs> I couldn't rent a car in my own name because I had no ID, and, uh, and various things. So what I, in retrospect, what I practiced during this whole unfolding of this unfortunate circumstance was gratitude for the things that did go right. My husband was with me, so the rental car rental could be changed into his name. And that meant that I didn't have to do any of the driving this weekend, <laughs> which was, uh, I was already in a very stressful situation. It, it was uh, for the memorial uh, celebration of my father's life. And I was very glad that I hadn't, didn't have to be driving in New York traffic. And my friend uh, who lives with us was able to overnight mail my passport to me so that I could get back to California and had ID. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of went on and on from there, finding the, the things that I could be grateful for in uh, the help that came my way in dealing with a difficult situation that everybody encounters one way or one time or another. So yeah. maybe gratitude practice is something to uh, put in here as well. Gratitude practice, but yeah, also it sounds like uh, the starting point was really recognize this as a diff really difficult situation. How can I not be caught in reactivity, you know, whatever, self-blaming, you know, just right. going the whole uh, way with that one, right? Yeah. So what, what is this, what it, you know, it's like asking yourself, what is a skillful way for me 
to be with this situation, which is very difficult, with, without reactivity. Right? And gratitude was what uh, came to you. Right? And sounds very skillful. And um, how many of us would have that presence of mind? <laughs> no, it's very. And it only took me a half an hour at DMV to get my temporary driver's license. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a great, it's a great story, you know. And and you were, and you also, uh, in the process, reached some deep understandings about the transiency of identity. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, okay, maybe last one, and then we'll, then we'll finish. Um, I'm kind of remembering uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut talking about unstuck in time. Does anyone reference that at all? You remember Kurt Vonnegut, the writer? Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you've heard uh, all the time when he became conscious, he became unstuck in time. Does that register at all? Yeah, it's... Um, it sounds. It sounds like I, I. I don't know. Does anyone know specifically about that that book? I. I don't. Yeah, but it sounds like it could really relate to metaphorically to what we're talking about. When he became conscious, he became unstuck in time. When he became unconscious, when he became conscious, he became unstuck in time. Beautiful. It was also also what came to mind is I was, as some of you know, I I was once enrolled in the clown school of San Francisco. And <clears throat> when we did a performance, one of my fellow, fellow troop members did a whole skit on being stuck. But it was actually, of course, as a clown, it was physical theater. And so this was actually having one's feet stuck. And the whole, the whole routine was based on how, you know, having one's feet stuck to the ground. And how do you deal with that? You know, and how do you get unstuck? Physically, so I have a video of it. Maybe I can show it. <laughs> bring it in sometime. Yeah, yeah. What was it? I uh, just was wondering how many of us remember when Donald used to bring his clown nose. Oh. <laughs> how many remember when I brought the clown nose? Isn't it in your pocket? Um, <laughs> it's, it's not now. You know, um, it's at home. <laughs> but the um, <clears throat> the training is still here. So good. <clears throat> so let's uh, let's just sit for a moment to finish. And I think I think we didn't quite exhaust this topic. And we had I had my suggestion of eight ways to work with uh, reactivity. Cultivate non-reactivity. <clears throat> um, study and track your own main forms of reactivity. Work with not shooting the second arrow. Work with being careful when there's reactivity about going up the ladder. Uh, cultivate uh, heart practices uh, when there's reactivity. Uh, there were some others, but I don't remember them all. Um, Oh yeah, um, have a, a few ways of knowing when you're, you know, have, have ways of coming back when you're lost or stuck. Uh, that was number five. Number six was coming back to the hearts. Uh, working with intention was number seven. And then keep on looking into the deeper roots of the reactivity was, num was number eight. And then we had some further, further suggestions. So 
Just see which of those or something else that may have been um, energizing for you that came this morning. And see what intentions you have uh, coming out of our morning. And then we close by bringing the dedication of merit, which is really the intention that our time together ultimately be a benefit for all beings, which includes us, which includes all those in our various circles. But then it goes further to hold the whole sense of wishing that this benefit all. wonderful next few weeks, Thanksgiving, and I'll see you in uh, 